Yeah. Well, I forgot about D&D for a minute there, too. I was like, wait, hang on a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Did You Do Your Homework? The show where we connect academic ideas to popular culture and make doing your homework fun for the first time maybe in your life. My name is Martha Sullivan, one of your wonderful co-hosts, and today I am an escape room planner extraordinaire because that is what I have been doing at work all week. I am joined today by two wonderful people. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg. I am a laser tagger and mini bowler because that's what I did last weekend uh, and it was a lot of fun. And our special guest tonight. Uh, I'm Rachel Hilbert um, and I am a early childhood teacher and backpacker. Hooray! Yes to backpacking. Thank you so much much for joining us tonight, Rachel. Of course. (laughs) Uh, Today we are going to be talking about tabletop role-playing games, uh, their place as we see it in an academic environment, our experiences with them, and some of our favorite games. But first, to show you all that we know exactly what we are talking about at all times, we're going to share with you our pop culture credentials. For any of you new to our show, these are the last pieces of media that we consumed, unedited for your delight. without consideration for guilty pleasure or shame factor. Uh, Pete, would you like to start us off? Sure. Um, I have been reading the last couple days uh, The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. This book originally was published in 1962 and was kind of an immediate smash hit. Um, It's historical, uh, popular history. It is about the opening days of World War I, where the slow, steady grind of all the various um, interlocking alliances and militarization and build-up towards war sort of inevitably cascades into a war that uh, not everyone necessarily wanted. Uh, I, I've read a couple other of Barbara Tuckman's books, um, specifically A Distant Mirror. She's a fantastic pop history writer, uh, and I kind of forgot how much I love just her prose, so... Um, I started reading this on Monday. I'm about 100 pages in, um, and I'm really enjoying it. You said that book was originally written in the 60s? Yeah, 1962. Um, It's been a book that's been sort of like percolating on my reading list, and I finally got the the final push to get it um, after watching the first episode of the new Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary where they reference yeah. that John Kennedy gave it to all his staff to read. Um, sort of as a, like, this is how we can accidentally fall into a war that nobody really wants, and then all just colossally screw up everything, so let's not do that, he said as he was falling into a war that nobody on his staff wanted, and then colossally screwed up everything. It's so interesting. I feel like World War One has been getting a lot of play in pop culture recently. Like, I'm used to World War II being kind of the go-to for, like, movies and stories and things, and I feel like recently it's really been World War One, which has been sort of... I don't want to say a nice change of pace because that sounds demeaning, and I don't mean to, like... Like, minimize it? Minimize, yeah, minimize the conflict. It's just I feel like I've been learning more about World War One recently, which has been cool. I think recently there was a 100th anniversary of a major battle, and I don't recall which one. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of the armistice. Um, so that'll be probably an event. What, what, um, what are you referencing there, Martha? Oh, just um, like when Wonder Woman came out, it was like, uh. oh, World War One. normally... I mean, most of that is because it felt so similar to um, Captain America, which was World right. War II. Um, I don't know. I just feel like, in general, World War One is not as heavily utilized in media as World War Two, and it was. It's been interesting. I also read. 
I think I see I'm about to I'm about to name drop a book and now I can't I I think it's about World War One. I. I read a book about the sinking of the Wilhelm Gustaloff, which may have been World War Two, but I think was World War One. It was an evacuee ship uh, from. That um, is World War Two, by the looks of it. Is it like a cruise oh, okay. ship? Yeah. Yeah, it was a cruise ship that got repurposed for evacuees that the British sunk. Like, huge maritime disaster that people never talk about, but it isn't actually related because it is World War II and not World War I. I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't talk at all because <laughs> I had nothing to contribute to that one. <laughs> well, Rachel, why don't you tell us what your last consumed piece of pop culture was? Yeah, well, um, just before you called, in fact, I was um, watching The Girls Next Door, the E! show about Hugh Hefner's three girlfriends in the Playboy Mansion. Ah, good timing, what with his uh, recent death. Yeah, well, that's I... what kind of, kind of started this for me, although I was a fan at the time when it was first airing as well, so... I was going to say, I feel like I heard that that show was sort of surprisingly, I don't want to say good, but... It is not the right word, no. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoyable? Fascinating? Enjoyable, yeah. It's What I love about it is that it's so transparently commercial. You know, like, the, the whole point of the show is to publicize the brand, Hmm. And they are just clear about that from the get go and like talk about it in the show. Like as a reality show, they're just going around and publicizing Playboy. Um, but at the same time, like it's it's these three women who start off as just like, hey, we're blondes that live with Hugh Hefner. And by the end of it, they all leave to go and have careers, which is what I really, really enjoyed about it, actually. Oh, huh. Yeah. Yeah, How it, many just, like, it, it like bucks the expectations in a way, you know. Yeah. How many seasons did it run for? Six, although the six, I think six. The last season, um, he has a set of new girlfriends. Um, uh, the, the three original ones leave. Um, and then it's not it's just not as fun anymore. Yeah, I also yeah. I, I, this is the first time I've rewatched it since I read um, Holly Madison's book down the rabbit hole um which is like extremely negative about her time in the playboy mansion so it's interesting to rewatch the show with like that different perspective hmm. mm -hmm. as well yeah fascinating yeah i forgot i had forgotten that that show existed and then you brought it up and it was like oh yeah i never watched it but i definitely remember other people like talking about it Probably me. <laughs> when yeah. when was it on? Uh, it was the early two thousand, mid two thousand, so like two thousand five to two thousand nine. Oh, okay, like so that. like like quite a bit ago, rather than. Oh yeah, 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 and it's 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 great too because it's like right before the real estate bubble, and they're opening all these new burst, right? It's um, so they're opening all these new clubs, and it's just like super, super materialistic. And then you know, it's it's a relic at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like it. It's not good, but it is definitely a snapshot, and I appreciate that. This may be a weird question, but at this point, I mean, before. Hugh Hefner died like the Playboy Mansion has still been going right like it's still a thing uh he sold or it. has that mostly he sold it huh before he died yeah huh. I I think he sold it to someone and then was renting the space so still lived there but no longer owned it <laughs> <laughs> he sold it I I believe that I'll sell you this mansion I would have to but I'm that one. <laughs> Still gonna live there. <laughs> yeah, well, I think well, that's amazing. Reasons, I'm sure because the you know the magazine isn't as successful as it was, and the show mm -hmm. you know the girls next door was like a huge boom for 
the Playboy business because the show yeah. wasn't it. Yeah. Um, but then in recent years, it hasn't been doing as well, I believe. Uh, this may be giving away quite a lot about my knowledge of Playboy as someone that vehemently disagrees with its message. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can be, you can be fascinated you can be fascinated by something and still disagree with its, uh, you know, central thesis. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've always felt conflicted about my, uh, girls next door fan, uh, status, but, uh, I'm not going to apologize. So (laughs) Ah, that's not, we're not here to judge. Right. Uh, as for, as for myself, I have been on a serious audiobook kick lately. Uh, my commute to my job every day is terrible. Uh, and I go back and forth between listening to a lot of podcasts versus listening to audiobooks because frequently um, I'll listen to like a week solid of one of those two and then need to take a break. Uh, and recently it's been audiobooks. And right now I am about a third of the way through a book called The Memory of Light by Francisco X. Stork. Uh, It's a book about a girl who, the book starts with her waking up in the hospital after attempting and failing to commit suicide. Uh, So it is um, about her kind of coming to understand why she uh, why she felt the need to commit suicide. Um, and I, I hope I, I'm not done with it yet, obviously. Uh, but I hope like learning, discovering that she, that that's not what she actually wants to do and kind of working her way through that. Uh, I do know that it's based off of the author's own experiences with, uh, mental health and hospitalization. So it has a lot of very real and very raw, uh, descriptions of what it's like to deal with clinical depression and um, what it's like to sort of realize that uh, you're not like the things that you're you're thinking are not true but can actually be like helped and improved and talked through so yeah that's what I'm reading right now are you enjoying it I am actually. Uh, frequently for me, the difference between enjoying an audiobook and not is the narrator. And uh, the woman who is reading it is really, really lovely. She, her, her character voices are only okay, but it's a first person perspective book. So really, I just need her to be effective at Vicky, who's the main character. And she's just, she's got a very soft, kind of unassuming um, voice that makes me want to like bundle her up like a burrito and protect her from the world. I, there, there have certainly been audiobooks that I have stopped listening to because the narrator, I couldn't get into the narrator, uh, and others that I have listened to. I, I, I wouldn't say after I stopped caring, but I got through it all the way on the strength of the narrator rather than the strength of the actual book. I've had people be surprised that I liked certain books as much as I did, and I think it's because I listened to them and they had particularly good narrators. I, I actually think that a book that if I was reading it in like prose version, I might not like could be my opinion of that could be altered by the effectiveness of the narrator. Mm-hmm. I have never listened to an audiobook. Really? Yeah. Do you do podcasts? Yes. Okay. I mean, you're also on one, but like that's. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly didn't start listening to audiobooks seriously until I started driving an hour to work every day. Um, and I think it's because like I tried one and the narrator sucked and I was like, oh, well, I guess I just don't like audiobooks. And then I got desperate for things to listen to because there are a finite number of episodes of the podcast I want to listen to. And after you know, giving myself some time to search for uh, different books. Also, since I'm a librarian and I work for a library, I subscribe to like three different ebook uh, library apps. So my my choices are many <laughs> for listening <laughs> material. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I just never have. Yeah. That's I mean, fair. I did when I was a kid. We had lots of audiobooks of like children's books. Um, oh, like books on CD. Get the 28 yeah, CD tape, version. On, like, actual tapes. <laughs> um, Somebody <laughs> checked out. Someone checked out the first Game of Thrones on audiobook today from the library. Oh, it is God. 36 CDs. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's like the shortest <laughs> of the books. See, this is why I really like YA audiobooks because the longest one I've listened to was like 12 hours. One and done. <laughs> that just scares me. Maybe that's why. It's because like it's such a commitment. You know, a podcast, you can listen to an episode here or there and like you don't most of the podcasts that I li- listen to are, are not serials. So you can skip them or, you know, like not listen <laughs> for years at a time and then jump right back in and feel like you didn't miss anything. But committing to 12 minimum hours is <laughs> <laughs> a little bit frightening to me. True. But then when I look at it in terms of my commute, it's like 12 hours becomes, okay, it's going to take me a week to listen to this. And that's not actually, that's not too off pace from my speed at reading a book these days. That's true. Yeah. My commute's like 20 minutes, so it would be, it would be be a little, (laughs) a little harder. Yeah. (laughs) My biggest, my biggest problem with audiobooks is, and the reason why they're perfect for commutes is, um, I can't do anything else when I'm listening to it other than listen to it. Oh. Um, so, like, See, like, I can. I mean, I, I can, you know, do the dishes or cook, but that's really the extent of it. Like, I can't also, you know, what, what I don't want to do is just sit around at home doing nothing but listening to the book because I get bored. So it's like I, I have gone on, like, a walk just because I got so sucked into the audiobook that I was listening to. I'm like, I want to find out what happens next. I'm going to go uh, on a walk by the river uh, just to keep listening to it because um, I can't just sit around listening and not, like, do anything else. Yeah. Sounds like a you problem. Yeah, no, it's totally <laughs> a me problem. <laughs> uh, all right. With that, uh, today we are talking about tabletop role-playing games. Now, what we mean when we say tabletop role-playing games, we are talking about... Basically, paper and pencil, although I know a lot of people now, including myself, uh, use laptops uh, as a supplemental tool, Uh, but paper and pencil role-playing games, storytelling games, uh, where you take on the role of a character uh, along with a group of other people and talk your way through adventures. Uh, These are usually led by a game master or dungeon master who serves as the a storytelling guide uh, who is either there to lead the players on a particular story or build the story around what the players decide to do. Um, As an uh, sort of an opening to our discussion, I'm interested to know uh, you guys, what your experience has been uh, up to this point with role-playing games. What games have you played? When did you start playing them? Uh, why do you enjoy playing them? Tell me about tell me about your your relationship to role playing games. Um, I'll start. Uh, well, I came kind of late to the table. I feel like um, pun intended. Pun intended. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because I did not start playing any tabletop RPGs until what is it? three, four years ago now, um, when you invited me, Martha, to join, <laughs> to join an all-newbie <laughs> game, um, which we are still sort of playing, although we've hit like a lull. Um, yeah, so that's a Pathfinder game, uh, and it's one campaign that we have been playing inconsistently, but once every couple months for several years now. Um, and then also I've played other Pathfinder games with you as well. Um, I have played Hero Kids, which is a very simplified version um, of a Pathfinder or Dungeons and Dragons type game for kids. So it uses only six-sided dice. 
Um, and the adventures are super, super short and they're like pre-written narratives as well. Um, and then I have sort of created my own games with the kids that I used to nanny for, um, in like half hour, 45 minute bursts, but they have been very, very unstructured. (laughs) Uh, that's my, pretty much my whole experience. I think I like it because there's two reasons. I, I like the I like the structure, especially for Pathfinder. I, I like the rules and knowing how things work and like you can memorize all these things and then you can predict stuff. Like I, I, I like that aspect of it, but I also really do get into my characters. Um, and although they are very similar to me, some of them are s- different from me as well. Um, so I do, I do get into my characters quite a lot and I care about them and I get very upset when they get hurt. Um, (laughs) like very, very upset. (laughs) Um, yeah. And the, the story is fun. I mean, like as somebody that's always loved books and stories and telling stories and listening to stories, it appeals to me. Um, and it definitely appeals to the kids that I've played with. Yeah, real fast. Me. Oh, sorry. What? Go ahead. I was just going to say real fast for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Pathfinder is basically what happened when Dungeons and Dragons moved from edition three, five to four, a bunch of players um, and probably, you know, whoever runs Paizo, the company that owns Pathfinder uh, said, Hey, we really like the rule set for 3.5. Can we keep uh, using it, and Wizards of the Coast said, sure, just don't use any of our trademarked names. Uh, and since then, that was the origins of Pathfinder, and since then it has gone on to really develop into its own uh, organism. A lot of um, people did... like to call it uh, Dungeons & Dragons version 3.75, because uh, it it did improve on a lot of what was going on in 3.5. It did, and a lot of... Go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of people, when D&D moved into its fifth edition, um, kind of moved into Pathfinder permanently because fifth edition Dungeons & Dragons is a much different, uh, much more different organism than fourth edition was. Yeah. I forgot to mention that I have also played Dungeons & Dragons, um, also with children, but older children, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember which edition it was, but it was very, very confusing and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> Sounds like fifth. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> um, I, I have not played fifth yet, but I've looked over the rule book and, and created some characters and I think it could be fun, uh, for someone it... looking for something totally different than traditional Dungeons and Dragons type gameplay that like, Martha, you and I are used to having, you know, played a lot of of 3.5 or Pathfinder. Yeah, uh, the the thing about D&D 5th Edition, and I won't spend too much time talking about this, but um, I haven't played any of it myself, but it has... The reason that I don't really want to is that it is essentially a much stronger theater-of-the-mind type deal. Um, And when I say that, I mean takes away the the player mat that we're all used to to using you don't need um game figures uh distances and um combat maneuvering isn't as big of a piece of the game anymore you can do all those things but you can also not do all of those things whereas in in previous iterations you had to And a lot of that is what I really enjoy. Like, I really like playing... Pathfinder is my main game at this point as well. Um, And I really like rolling out the battle mat and setting up the figures and, you know, moving the the mooks around and seeing where everybody is, uh, you know, positioned and how all of that affects the combat. I really enjoy that kind of piece of it. Um... But I digress. Pete, when did your role-playing career start? Oh, I I was trying to think back on this. I think I started in middle school, 
Um, wow. I, if not when I was in middle school, then um, I would have been early high school. Uh, I had a neighbor who lived across the street, and then my younger brother Mark and myself, uh, we bought like maybe the player's handbook for D&D 3.5. And maybe the monster manual, and we had those for a while, and then at some point picked up the Dungeon Master Guide as well. Um, the early outings were exactly what you'd expect from, like, a bunch of middle schoolers who <laughs> didn't really read the rules that closely and also didn't care. Like, which is kind of great. You know, three three kids who are, you know, we, we were not like the kids in Stranger Things actually knowing all the rules and stuff. We were just... Three kids screwing around like somebody was a vampire with a spiked chain because that was cool um, and totally broken. But who cares? It was cool. We were having fun. Um, as we played more and like I sort of read the rules more, it became much more structured. We, we started playing it for real. Um, most of my experience playing role-playing games, I've ended up in the role of the Dungeon Master. Um often because nobody else wants to take that role in the groups I'm with, and also because I do like telling stories and creating stories. Um, I've never used a pre-made um, plot or story or whatever, uh, mostly because I just like coming up with my own, although increasingly I don't have time for it, so that's mm -hmm. kind of tough. Um in college, I had I, I wasn't a dungeon master. I was actually able to be a character, and I had one of the best DMs I, I can conceive of for like my my first two years in college, um, and and that I think was kind of formative. Um, uh, so in addition to playing Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, I've also played Shadowrun, which is a all six sided dice game. That's a cyberpunk uh, system. Martha, I know I played that with you um years, yeah <laughs> years ago <laughs> um any anytime i i watch the matrix or watch a heist movie i'm like man i want to play shadow run right now because that's what it is um and then uh in the last couple years i've started playing a game called fiasco which i really love um and i also think it's one that could easily be incorporated in <clears throat> maybe not a classroom setting, but, like, an easy after-school club setting. Um, you use the dice to establish relationships at the beginning of the game rather than necessarily outcomes of the relationships. And then it's basically uh, creating a, a Coen brother, uh, you know, movie along the lines of Fargo or Burn After Reading. Um, you have a setting, you have character relationships, which are decided by the dice. Uh, everyone's got a particular gender or goal and then there's a set number of scenes um each person gets to be in it's like two or, or three scenes or something um where either the outcome is good for you or bad for you uh and at the end either you get what you want or you end up in a wood chipper uh or whatever the case may be um, i was gonna say if we're talking <laughs> about after school club i don't know that i would advocate throwing anybody into the wood chipper well it's like it, it's a game that the 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 rule book has a very Cohen-y air to it, um, so if you like that sort of black humor, things go awry, situations. That's the, it's sure. a game great for that, and it's a game that can be done in like two three hours. Um, it's all one shots, oh, so that's so good. And, and there's there's no uh, game master or storyteller. Um, everyone has an equal part there. Oh, that's oh, that's, that's interesting. I've I particularly loved it recently since I don't have time to be like a good DM. I can like just coordinate schedules with people and be like, hey, we can all meet for three hours on this night. Great, that's all I need to do in advance. <laughs> um, so it it's a cool mechanic. Interesting. Um, as for myself, I think. I started playing RPGs my freshman year of high school, which was the first time that I was friends with other people who also played them. I think before Nerds, before I was in high school, say. I hadn't actually I like I had probably heard of D and D because it's so like culturally ubiquitous, uh, but I had never actually considered playing. Um, in high school, I created a lot of characters without playing in a whole lot of games and yeah i don't think i started playing 
I played some I played a little bit of a game called Legend of the Five Rings, which is an RPG sort of based on kind of a conglomerate of Asian mythology. Uh, there's a you know some Japanese, some Chinese, some Korean, and then just some fantasy mixed in there to keep it from being like wholesale racist. Um, I played enough of that that I got it in my head to run my own campaign as like a 15 year old that never got off the ground. Um, but other than that, I started seriously playing once I moved in with my now husband who has been playing games for much longer and much more seriously than I have. Um, <laughs> quick aside we... on that. The first time I ever <laughs> met, uh, your, your now husband, I was, like in sixth grade at boy scout camp and he's like five or six years older than me and he was playing some random rpg uh and as an awkward sixth grader i did not talk to him at all but i was like oh whatever he's doing sounds cool he's got like the rule book with tables and stuff that's cool <laughs> so did yeah. bill sort of get you into rpgs this is wonderful Un unintentionally like in no active way because again i didn't like talk to him at all um, right. but it was just like sort of present in my peripheral and I was like, oh, what are those guys doing? It seems interesting and cool. Um, yeah. Well, my first experience with RPGs was also you and Bill, Martha. <laughs> um, so really when I was Bill living is... with you and you, you used to play some like superhero thing. Am I right? Is this not a true thing that happened? I'm trying to remember. I think it was Spycraft that we were playing. No, it was Superheroes. Was it Superheroes? Okay, yeah, that would it be Mutants and Masterminds. Thing, and I was so confused about what was happening because you were all just like sitting around and I was and talking about <laughs> superheroes, but like, I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> before I actually started playing. So yeah, that was my first experience, you know, and I didn't even really connect it to Dungeons and Dragons or have any like concept of what that meant. Um, yeah, so there you go. Just bringing people together that's... through role-playing games. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, that's one of the things I want to talk about today. Um, but just real quick to go through, um, at this point I am playing in three different Pathfinder campaigns. I am running one. Um, whenever I go to, we go to Gen Con, the gaming convention every year. Whenever I, I go to that, a big part of my uh, con experience is playing in uh, organized Pathfinder play. Um, I'm big fan. They just came out with their new system called Starfinder, which is a, they call it a science fantasy because there's still, still not a lot, uh, still a lot of sort of fantasy and mysticism in the system. Um, I'm a big fan of Star Wars Edge of the Empire, the Star Wars role-playing game, which at this point I think has three different interlocking games. Um, I have played Shadowrun. I'm not the biggest fan. I don't really <laughs> like D6. Uh, I don't really like the D6 dice rolling system. Um, but it, I guess my point is that I play a lot of RPGs, and one of the reason that one of the reasons that I like playing them so much is that I really like creating and then inhabiting new characters. Like the process of creating a character writing their backstory, figuring out what they're all about um, is a lot of fun for me. Uh, a lot of my characters end up being sort of similar. Um, I definitely have a type. Uh, she usually ends up being... Um, for a long time, I played waspy, snobbish, rich girl that has to learn to be a human being around other people. Uh, now I kind of like playing just generally cranky uh, warrior type ladies. Um, but yeah, I like telling stories. I like making characters. And I really like just cooperative. I like the cooperative aspect. 
Um, it carries over into the board games that I like to play. I like playing with people rather than against people. Uh, and RPGs are basically, you know, the ultimate form of collaborative game playing, um, which is the the part that I'm a big fan of. Yeah. As an aside, like when one thing I love doing is creating characters. I'm I'm with you on that one. Um, as someone who's like. DM'd or GM'd for 90% of of my play time. That means I've created a lot of characters, but also that I haven't gotten to inhabit a lot of them. Um, like, I might come up with a crazy backstory for an interesting character and then do nothing with that because, you know, he shows up in, a, in five scenes and then is defeated or just goes away. Um, do you have that same sort of issue when you're GMing where, like, you love the, the creation and the inhabiting, but then you don't really get to do as much with them as you might want? No, and I'll tell you why. I have only ever run pre-written adventures, and as much as I love Pathfinder, the pre-written adventure paths are not great for that. Mm. Um, I have really little to no interest in writing my own campaign materials, I don't know that I'm a good enough storyteller to create something like that out of whole cloth, which is why I'm running uh, Skull and Shackles, the pirate-themed uh, Pathfinder adventure path right now. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> that Rachel is also <laughs> playing in. That's right. Um, but... I, I don't give a whole lot of... Th I mean, unless the adventure path gives me like some meat about the characters, which it doesn't always, or at least it doesn't in a format that matters to my players and thus matters to me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't get a whole lot of meat about them to inhabit anyway, and then they're just sort of there and gone. Sure. Um, which, I guess to your point, doesn't super bother me. Uh, when I'm GMing, it's I'm more into the... Uh, like telling telling the story for my players rather than um, getting super into the NPCs myself. Sure, makes sense. I don't actually... I find it very hard to think about my characters' backstories when I'm first creating them. Um, I sort of... I think, and this may this may be a flaw in my um, RPG playing, but I I tend to like flesh them out as I go. So it's sort of like a you know my characters have all been hit over the head with amnesia, right? Like, and are, and are recovering <laughs> their memories along the adventure because I I just I find it so hard to like figure out exactly what's happened to them before they start doing things, and I realize what what seems appropriate for them to have experienced previously. I don't know. I like that out you give yourself of like, oh, it's amnesia, so I'll figure it out as I go along. <laughs> like, that's that, that's a really clever way around it. Well, that's, I've never actually said that in oh, any shucks. of my characters' backstories, but that's the <laughs> Well, and honestly, I don't think there's a problem with like waiting until you've played because frequently for me until I've played a little I don't really know how I'm gonna like how I'm gonna react to a character or how my like how I'm gonna want to play my character so waiting until I kind of have a handle on how I want them to be before I it's like locking yourself into something before you're necessarily ready to do that like what if what if you think of this backstory and then you're playing the game and you're like, wait, but I don't want to do that thing that I think my character, as I've written her, would do. Would do, yeah. Yeah. Which is all which is all kind of bananas because at the end of the day, like we are them anyway. So anything <laughs> we decide to make them do is quote unquote in character. But it's no, it that makes total sense to me. Yeah, I like um, to fill it out first. Plus, plus, different people come at it from different directions. Some people really like the nuts and bolts numbers, and I'm I'm sometimes one of these where I'll build a character by like looking at a rule book and figuring out a cool build I could do, and then from there I'll backwards develop 
a character story and other people go the other direction they come up with a character story and from there look at the rule books to see what they can build so i it, it's sort of that thing where like role-playing games have something for anyone as long as you like telling stories randomized outcomes and reading charts and tables uh so uh and, and i say that jokingly <laughs> and with love um but, like, you know, th there's something for anyone, so there's no wrong way to approach it. Like, if, if all your characters start off with amnesia and you figure it out going forward, like, that's just as good as writing a 10-page a backstory for every single character you make. Yeah. I think that the, the pre-written adventure paths don't lend themselves to creating a character from the backstory as the starting point as well because you can get yourself in a hole so easily since the outcomes are much more scripted does that make sense mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. if you're if you're you know if it's much more of like a sandbox type thing or if the the GM is writing the story as you go along then the adventure can fit to your characters whereas you know these pathfinder adventures that are pre-written your character has to fit the adventure or else you're you're going to die right <laughs> sure. off the bat right Yes. <laughs> um, so I'd like to transition now that we have kind of covered our, our personal feelings and experiences with uh, games to talking about how we have or have how we have or would like to use games uh, in an academic environment. I know for myself, I'm a librarian. You, you know, it's come up a couple of times in the podcast. Uh, and I, at the last library that I worked at, I had a regular uh, gaming group of kids who I would run games for. And one of the, this has actually gotten to be a pretty popular program to run in libraries. Uh, and the, the question that we're always faced is, you know, what is the value of the programs that you're running? Like, why does this deserve time, the time and attention um, of developing a program for it. So I have given s serious thought to the benefits and the things that role-playing games can teach people, particularly kids, particularly teenagers in my case. Um, and we've kind of touched on some of them, but I will say that my, you know, the biggest thing that I like about role-playing games with kids is this aspect of cooperative storytelling. Like, they really are a great tool, I think, for teaching kids how to problem solve together in a way that is fun and doesn't feel like, ugh, we're working in a group project. Right. Springboarding off that, um, Stranger Things kind of hits on that idea a lot. I mean, I, I love those four mm -hmm. kids. And in my mind, I, I don't really know their names. I just refer to them by their D&D &D archetypes because they kind of fit those molds. Um, but I, I loved all the scenes when, you know, one kid would be like, no, this isn't how we would do it in D&D. In &D. If we did it this way, we'd all die. So, like, we need to use our heads, work together, figure this out, just like we do in the game. Um like, it, it's it's a nice sort of visualization of that exact idea that you're talking about, where it's building a lot of really useful social and emotional and problem-solving skills in ways that don't feel like that's what it's doing. In an early session of my library Pathfinder game, I had a kid who was very excited to play a rogue. And he had never played a game like this before. And all he wanted to do was kill all the guards and steal all the treasure. He had no interest in sharing with his teammates and, in fact, frequently would ask me, like, oh, what do I roll to make sure they don't know that I've, like, taken the loot from this encounter? And, you know, it was getting to the point where his his teammates were like, what the heck, dude? Like, this is obnoxious. And... It was the kind of situation that ultimately fixed itself because the players just started reacting the way that their characters would. It's like, oh, you tried to steal my... You're, you're trying to pickpocket me? I punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it became a, a self-regulating 
and then ultimately a self-correcting problem because the kid was like, well, I don't want to keep like, I don't want to keep getting into fights. And his teammates were like, well, then don't steal from us, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I I think so. So I'm very excited about the idea of using tabletop role playing games with kids. And I have I have used them with kids with um, I think when we started. So the kids that I used to nanny Finn and Sky are now eight and six. And when we first started trying to do this, they were six and four. Um, the issues that we have always had is that it's, it's difficult for me to run a game with just one kid. Um, Mm -hmm. and the younger one has never been quite as into it as the older one has. (laughs) And in fact, has been actively sabotaging the games at times as well, you know? So she, she, she goes back and forth between like, trying to undermine whatever her brother's doing or being completely passive and needing to be coached into everything that she does. Um, and neither of which are very much fun for me. So our, our games have often ended with me getting fed up with the kids and then we just stop before we finish whatever the adventure is. Um, yeah. So that's my frustration, but I, I would, I've always wanted to try it with like a, a bigger group of kids. Like you're like, you've done Martha. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for, for the age group that I work with, which is preschool through second grade, uh, the game mechanics have to be simple. They just, they have to be. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. But there's so much benefit to, you know, the cooperative storytelling and the problem solving that I, I feel like it could be so beneficial. My worry is, mm, no, my wonder is, can it be done within a school day? So after school programming, I totally get, but can this actually happen in like a classroom setting? So I, I taught middle school. Um, and sadly, I never did use any any sort of role-playing games in that setting. However, thinking about this episode, um, specifically I taught middle school social studies, and I've thought of a lot of situations where it wouldn't be a mechanic-heavy situation, but you could easily incorporate a, a historical event and a role-playing situation, like, um, you know just talking about uh, World War One and in the outset with the guns of August. Like, you could have a, like, all right, like a model UN type thing. You're Germany, you're France, you're Russia, whatever. Here's the situation. Here's what each of you wants. Um, can you do better than the real world? Um, and, and you could come up with some very simple mechanics to make that happen, and that could be like a one 50-minute classroom session. Um, uh-huh. but, but that would be something that you'd, you as the educator would have to spend a lot of time thinking of creating structuring um and then selling on teachers pay teachers hopefully or some similar site (laughs) um but but i i think you can do it for for older students for sure um having had no experience with anyone younger than than sixth grade i'm not really sure how well that would necessarily um fit um or again like how 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 much structure you need I, I don't know. Well, I'm sure since we all went to the same schools that you've had similar experiences, but teachers do things like this in, in like simulations, right? So, so, mm-hmm. you know, we did when I was in I think third grade, we did a California gold rush simulation where we were all minors you know, and, and you have like your mine and it's like chance whether or not you're going to get gold out of it. And you have to cooperate with the other miners and try and like form a town. And I remember doing one with the Greek city states in fifth or sixth mm-hmm. grade, mm, that'd be a good one. Um, which is a similar there. Thing. Yeah. You were in my class. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it definitely can be done. I, I, are there preset curricula for this or is, were all of our teachers actually writing all these things 
I honestly don't know. Um, I know that gamification in the classroom is very popular right now. But as far as I can tell, a lot of that is like being generated as needed. Mm -hmm. Um, Something like Teachers Pay Teachers might be a place to start looking for things, but that's all just going to be somebody homebrewing it themselves. I don't know of any, like, Pearson or Houghton Mifflin-style company creating anything close to, like, the Greek city-state player handbook for sixth grade. <laughs> uh, that, being, that being said, patent pending, patent pending, patent pending, because that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> well it was fun oh, it was we got to dress up in togas for like all day i believe i was i was in sparta you were good choice i was i don't think we got to choose because i was in corinth and that made me mad because i didn't know what that meant as a I fifth grader like in corinth i, yeah. I love greek I history like... i don't know what that means <laughs> nobody knows what that means yeah <laughs> Um, I, I don't know if this exactly, actually, I know it doesn't exactly answer your question, but I do have experience with a game system that I think would lend itself really well to that kind of, uh, classroom role-playing. It's called Rhesus, the Anything RPG. It is available for free, and the game is based off of, um... It's basically like the character creation and then the roles that you make in the story are all based off of cliches. Hmm. So if you write a character who is a Viking, then you may have character traits are Viking, gambler, womanizer, and poet. And then those would be the skills that you then base your roles off of. But the cliches can be anything you want. So I can see a world in which your kids are role-playing as certain things. And like, you know, to take the, the Greek city States uh, example, it's like, you're playing a Spartan. Your cliches are like warlike brawler, laconic, <laughs> you know, stuff like, like where you, where you base uh, your, your character traits off of like known characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, which then, um, it's a 2D6 based system that you then add numbers, uh, like you give each of your cliches a number rating based off of a points pool, and those you then add to your dice rolls. So like, if you're you know playing that Viking and you get into a fist fight, then you can make a roll using your Viking cliche trait. Which is um, like like a plus two or something, like plus some static number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, based on what you've assigned, based on the strength of that cliche that you have assigned to your character. Um, but it's meant to be very sort of loose and uh, improv while also maintaining a sense of coherency because of the strength of the character cliches that you use. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, because one of the one of the challenges that I've come across is the the most fun that I have ever had with young children doing role playing games. So Finn has gotten really into he's the eight year old. He's gotten really into the idea of playing Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder. And every time I see him, he asks me if I have played recently. And if I have played recently, I have to tell him everything that happened. You know, like, he's really excited about this. But it's entirely the storytelling that he likes. Mm-hmm. You know, the game mechanics are meaningless to him. He does not care. I, All he, he knows that you have to roll some dice, you know? So, so sometimes we play, we, it's, it's like we, we role-play role-playing games right where he's like uh-huh. gonna play dungeons and dragons now and then basically what he does is he acts out what he believes is a typical dungeons and dragons storyline and i occasionally <laughs> tell him he has to roll a die and if it's like a five or a six then he gets to do that thing <laughs> <laughs> um, when, and, and you bring up a good point part going back a little in the conversation part of what makes makes role-playing games fun and also like really great for for any kid is that like it happens 
and then you can keep telling the story of that that crazy thing happening. Um, right. Because you or do have that randomness. Or it doesn't happen. Uh-huh. And that can be just as good. Yeah. In terms of telling your story. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, and that is, the, I think that's the most important aspect of it educationally is that sometimes it doesn't happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also, as you mentioned earlier, Martha, the the character development which is along the same lines, I think, you know, so, so your idealized character, you know, who is like super sneaky and kind of a jerk, um, or, you know, Finn's idealized character who can literally cast any spell ever and has the most powerful (laughs) weapon in the known universe. Neither of those are fun characters to play. And that realization is a really important teaching point for kids yes which is why i like playing these games with kids is because they need to get to that point but getting to that point can sometimes be very challenging and is and is almost always very time consuming Mm -hmm. much like anything with with especially younger kids right yes of course (laughs) um another thing that i wanted to mention yes (laughs) For uh, for small kids, so this this does this wouldn't apply for middle schoolers as much or high schoolers, but the math involved in these types of games is also pretty awesome oh. from an early childhood perspective. No, 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 it's great from an adult perspective. My ability to do basic yes. addition and subtraction dramatically increased in college when I was playing D and D twice a week. Like, yeah, well way better the probability the probability angle is really great for teenagers like having them having them have to think about like okay if my you know if my base attack bonus is plus 12 and i'm rolling a d20 and i need x to hit that like like having to having them figure out like what is the likelihood that i'm actually going to be able to do this thing and then decide whether they're going to try based on that probability. Like that that is part of the whole problem solving aspect. So yeah, I, I think the math the math is beneficial no matter what age you're talking about. Yeah, and for little kids it's just, you know, all you have to do to make it fun and also hard is have two dice and make a math. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, I once yeah, I once made a challenge by having a dot die and a numbered a numeral die. And and that was really fun to work on too. Heck yeah. This all seems very nicely common core aligned too, like using different uh different numberings, all this good stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, and one of the things that I hope our listeners really get from what we're talking about is that at the end of the day, RPGs can be as simple or as complex as you want or need them to be. Like even even a game like Pathfinder is pretty customizable based on how hard do you want to stick to these rules? Like how cuz when I'm when I'm GMing my my first priority is to always make sure that my players are having fun. And sometimes if that means I flub the stats that the book has given me on an enemy because I think that it's BS, mm-hmm. then I do that yep. because the book is not my leader or the book is not my ruler. Sometimes a bad um, guy has magically higher or lower armor, depending on uh, how <laughs> challenging it is. Sometimes if you have a table of six very high or higher level players than your book thinks there are, then there are 12 zombies instead of eight. And they all have higher um, HP. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, I think that that's true as well when you're talking about um, you know, what age level you're working with, you know, you can make the game and the math and the rules as complex or as simple as it needs to be based on your audience. And I don't think that that has has to be a super hard or difficult adjustment. Well, and speaking of, we've been talking about role-playing games that that require dice and and such things. Um, There are a lot of systems out there that don't even use that. Some use cards as a randomizing factor, there's one game that I've never played, but I've seen played and heard of called Dread that uses a Jenga tower as its mechanic, where 
anytime your character tries to do something hard, you have to, like, you know, do Jenga. Uh, and if the tower collapses, your character leaves the game, whether through death or insanity or whatever. Um, so, you know, you can do this based on, on dice and have it be simple or complicated or whatever, but you can also do it based on almost any other system that you can think of as a way to to insert some amount of, of randomness um, or chance to the outcome. Or to the, yeah, uh, or to the starting in a uh, position. Oh, sorry? Like, uh, either to the outcome, or sometimes the randomness is best added uh, to the initial creation. Yeah, I played in a, a live-action roleplay once, which isn't quite the same as a tabletop RPG, uh, but the mechanic that we used for skill checks was uh, card-based, so we got a deck of cards that was tailored to, like, our character's skill level. So the, there were a certain amount. If you were a higher level character, you would have more high level cards. Um, but you would still have a handful of low level cards because when you encountered something, you would flip to see, uh, flip against your your opponent's flip. So if you like played the higher card. Yeah. So there were you, everybody had a few low-level cards just because there's always a chance for absolute failure, but the better your character was, the more high cards in your deck you had. So you're, you know, the better probability that uh, you would have better probability of flipping high cards. Yeah. And that's the nerdiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think the lesson here is that role-playing games are beneficial to people of all ages. <laughs> Absolutely. And that with a little bit of creativity, you can incorporate it into any setting. Yes. Agreed. Yes. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's going to be all the time that we have for you you guys tonight rachel thank you so much for joining us this has been a delight having you on our show i hope that i hope that you will consider joining us again in the future absolutely um if people wanted well first if people want to find us on the internet you can uh find our home on the web at uh homeworkpodcast.com uh you can follow us on twitter at dydyh podcast i'm pretty sure that is correct don't don't have these pulled up in front of me right now <laughs> don't add us uh, because you can't because you don't know what our at is <laughs> no do add us i'm pretty sure that that's it <laughs> dy dyh <laughs> podcast can, yeah you can find us on facebook you can send us an email at show at homeworkpodcast.com you can rate and review us on iTunes, and I hope that you do. That is how our new listeners are going to be able to find us. That's what's going to keep us on the radar uh, amongst the sea of other podcasts that are out there in the world. Uh, Rachel, if people wanted to find you online, if you wanted people to find you online, where would they look? Uh, nowhere. <laughs> That's fair. I have, I have no social media presence. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, you can find me on social media at Magical Martha. I'm pretty active on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000. Sounds good. Um, our topic for next week or not next week, but our topic for next episode, we are going to be joined by a friend of the show, Dan Carlin. And we are going to be talking about sound and music in media. Pete, what do you have to assign us for our next episode? So in honor of the fact that uh, we're recording on a Thursday, October 5th, and tomorrow Blade Runner 2049 comes out, uh, I am assigning Blade Runner the uh the first one um go for the director's cut or the final cut i don't care which one you do um i like the director's cut just don't watch the original theatrical cut um since we're looking at sound pay particular attention to the music which is why i chose this um and how it helps set the mood of scenes sometimes in 
uh, unusual ways. Uh, and for me, I'm going to make you all watch an episode of from season two of American Horror Story, episode 10, called The Name Game. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to pay attention to, because I think it will be obvious once you watch the episode. It's just somebody uh, saying names over and over again. Spoilers, Pete. <laughs> I've, I've never seen this, so I hope that's true. <laughs> uh and Dan would like everybody to watch the 2001 David Lynch film Mulholland Drive. It is going to be a trip of an episode, <laughs> y'all. So I do hope you'll join us. I'm very excited uh, that Dan has assigned Mulholland Drive. I've been meaning to rewatch it for, like, years now. I've never seen it, so this will be a fun adventure. Buckle up. Uh, Rachel, thank you again for joining us. Good night to all of our listeners out there. Pete, do we have a normal sign-off that I'm just completely forgetting about? Class dismissed. Class dismissed.